Uh, this morning, we want to turn our attention uh, back to uh, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, last week, we focused on verses 10 through 20. This week, we're going to focus on verses 21 and 22. But I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse number 10 just so we can have uh, context. Luke chapter number 3, verses 10 through 22, simply declare, And the crowds asked him, What shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two eunuchs is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. It's a hard word for us. Be content with the money that you're making on your job. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him uh, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and, uh, and for all the evil things he had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now, when all, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, he was praying. The heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descending on, on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Uh, just for a few uh, moments this morning, I want to preach from a very simple subject title. I want to talk about uh, the ministry of Jesus. I want to talk about the ministry of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I am so thankful for your word. Thankful that your word is, is living and active. I'm thankful that your word allows us to uh, take a journey um, not just uh, to hear a sermon, but we have an opportunity to make a connection between what was said thousands of years ago, what was said to people who we will never know. But God, I thank you that what your word reveals to them also speaks to us. I thank you that the truth of your word, the powerful, unchanging, uncompromising truth of your word is so applicable to us today. God, I pray specifically that this sermon would be a, a surgical procedure. Lord, where spiritually you would root out the things that need to be changed. That you would cut away the areas that are not of you. That you would reveal to us, God, the thoughts, the mindsets, the notions, God, that do not align themselves with your word or your will for our life. God, what we're praying for is that you keep us and protect us, God, from just another sermon and just another religious experience. God, what we truly desire is to hear from you. 
God, what we truly desire is a word from you. God, help, help us see that as a reality. Help us see that as something that you want to do in our lives and through our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On last Sunday, we focused on verses 10 through 20 of chapter number 3. And in these verses, we got to hear John testify and clarify uh, his public ministry and his personal identity. In those verses, John addresses the crowd and John also addresses Christ. In addressing the crowd, John is super clear that while some people wanted to make him the Messiah, while some people wanted to confuse his identity, John is very clear that he is not the Messiah. He's very clear in sharing the gospel message. He's very clear in sharing the message of hope, the message of repentance, and the message of redemption. John is clear that the gospel message not only transforms how we pursue God, but it also transforms how we pursue people. Uh, In that section, it mentions, if you see one who is in need of a coat, or if you see one who is in need of food, the scriptures tell us that we need to do something about it. This week, I was very encouraged. I got a couple of calls, a couple of texts. I couldn't even, I got so many this week that I couldn't even answer all of them about people asking questions about what do I do? How do I respond? Like what things are in place for me to do something about the things that I see? And I want to just say this very clearly and very generally. I really do believe in my heart when the Lord allows you to see a need, the Lord wants you to meet that need. Yes, as a church body, we need to do things collectively. We need to do things like the Thanksgiving outreach. We need to systematically uh, be focused on our giving to the poor and the least and the less. But I want to just say this very clearly. You, You don't need a pastor. You don't need a reverend. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a deacon. You don't need an elder when you see a need. All you need is a willing heart to meet the needs. In the text, we will see, in the text we simply saw, that John reminds us that the gospel compels us to pursue people. I want to say that again. The gospel, the message of hope, the message of redemption, the message that Jesus has brought to us moves me toward people. It does not move me away from people. It moves me in deeper relationships with people. The gospel helps us be generous. Not uh, that 2019 uh, social media generosity uh, where we post a picture or post um, a, a graphic Uh, to show the world how uh, generous we are, but we're speaking about a kind of generosity where you are not simply and solely concerned about what is in your closet or what is in your cabinets. Biblical generosity removes this mindset where I'm only concerned about me and my house. Biblical generosity uh, protects me from simply building my own kingdom for myself. A biblical generosity keeps me in this position where I'm asking myself, Lord, Uh, Not necessarily how much uh, should I keep, but Lord, how much should I give away? Like how much are you calling me to be a blessing to others? When you look at the the text, John addresses the crowd, but he also addresses Christ. Rather than allowing the people to look to him, he pointed to Christ. Rather than allowing the people to celebrate him, John celebrates Jesus. He did not take the credit. He did not give uh, people an opportunity to celebrate himself. Uh, He gave the people an opportunity Uh, to point to Jesus. He gave the people an opportunity to know that Jesus in his ministry was greater. 
John had been known as the great baptizer, but John specifically is telling us that Jesus would bring forth a greater baptism. Uh, John is specifically telling us that Jesus' baptism would do more than simply get you wet. Uh, Water baptism is a powerful symbol. It is something that we should do. It is an act of obedience. It is a, it is a public sermon that, that we've been changed inwardly. It is something that is incredible. And I encourage you, if you have not been baptized, you should be baptized. But on its, in its truest form and on its, on its lowest level, baptism will only be an external symbol. It's only a symbol. Baptism is great, but it's only a symbol. Water baptism is wonderful, but it's only something external. And John tells us that what Jesus is going to bring to us, what Jesus offers to us, is not something that is simply external in terms of getting you wet. John tells us that Jesus is going to provide something that's going to be internal, that's going to transform your life. He's telling us that Jesus offers a baptism of the Spirit and of fire. And I want you to hear me clearly when I say this. A person can be water baptized without being baptized with the Spirit and fire. When we speak about the Spirit's baptism, we're saying that we are being made a part of God's family. We have been grafted into the body of Christ. Uh, That is something that does not require that you become immersed in water to happen. That happens when Christ indwells your life. When you look at the text, the first thing we see is that John makes a declaration to the crowd, and John makes a declaration about Jesus. But beginning in verse number 21, we begin to hear more about the ministry of Jesus. We begin to hear more and see more about what Jesus has come to do. And the first thing we see is the ministry of Jesus is marked by being present with the Father's people. I'll say it again. The ministry of Jesus is marked by being present with the Father's people. Verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized, and was praying, the heavens opened up. When you read verse 21, it should not be an uncommon question to ask, what is Jesus doing in the baptism line? If Jesus was really sinless, if Jesus was really perfect, I mean, If Jesus was really the man that we say he is, why in the world would he be baptized? I mean, if you look at the text, it's communicating that baptism is something that is reserved for people who have confessed their sins and repented of those sins. In context, there were tax collectors in the line. Uh, the people who had robbed people. There were soldiers in the line, folks who had extorted people. And the baptism line would be a line where most people would say, Jesus does not belong in that line because sinners are in that line. But in the text, Jesus is in the line. I mean, if baptism is reserved for people who are making a public profession that they are sinners saved by grace, why would someone who never sinned need to be in the line. Just in case you're wondering whether or not Jesus sinned, I want you to go with me quickly to John, or me actually to Luke, the 23rd chapter. I want us to look at what the thief on the cross has to say about Jesus and his sinlessness. It's okay for us to jump from chapter number 20, chapter 3 to chapter 23 because by the time we get to chapter to, to by the time we get to chapter 23, the majority of the freshmen are going to be graduated. So I figure we can go ahead and get y'all a little bit of it right now. 
Luke 23, verse 39 says, One of the criminals who hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He was never, he was never water baptized, but he placed his faith and trust in Christ. And in that moment, he had a relationship with God that could never change. In that moment, he recognized that Jesus was sinless, that Jesus did not deserve to be there, that Jesus was a sinless man. He confesses that we're getting what we deserve, but Jesus is not getting what he deserved. Jesus is getting a punishment that he did not deserve. On last week, probably the most helpful but the most troubling part of our sermon, we talked about how John the Baptist was a faithful man who found himself in prison. He was a faithful preacher. He was a faithful uh, minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he found himself locked up in prison. He told the truth, and it got him in trouble. He told the truth. He spoke truth to power, and he ended up in prison, and ultimately ended up getting his head cut off. And we're honest. If we're honest about that text, if we're honest about what happens to John, there's something in our heart that says that's just not right. It's not right for, 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 for this, sinful, uh, this sinful leader to kill this righteous man. This is not right for God to allow something bad to happen to a good person. That's how we think about the text. But even here in our text today, we see that Jesus is really the only good person. Jesus is really the only person who could ever say, I've been wrongly accused. I've been justly um, hurt. I've been placed in a position where I'm being punished for something that I did not do. And even in this moment, we need to recognize that the Lord loved Jesus. And a part of God's plan was to allow Jesus to suffer. A part of God's plan was to allow Jesus to have a rough moment. A part of God's plan was to allow Jesus to bear the sins of this world, to take on the sins of this world, to endure the cross, to endure the shame, to be beaten, to be whipped, to be mocked, even though he did not deserve it. It's a reminder for all of us in those moments where God allows bad and hard things to happen to us. I should never place myself in a position where I shake my fist at God. I should never place myself in a position where I feel like I'm too good to go through a hard day. I should never place myself in a position where I am too uh, righteous in my own mindset to think that the Lord should not allow me to experience the ministry of suffering. Because catch this, in allowing me to experience the ministry of suffering, I become closer to Jesus. There's some things in your life that you will not experience without suffering. I hate to say that. I hate to confess that. But the things that I've learned in hard moments that I only learned through suffering. And when I have those moments of suffering, what keeps me grounded, what keeps me focused, what keeps me um, Having an eternal perspective is to consider what Jesus went through for me so that one day there will be no suffering 
and there will be no more tears, there will be no more dying, and I will be in his presence in heaven for eternity. You think about it, the ministry of Jesus is marked by his presence with people. In doing so, Jesus is clearly identifying with sinners. Since Jesus had been appointed to be the sin bearer, he goes to where the sinners are. Other religious teachers would say that, that, that he was too worked up, that he was uh, too committed to being with, with the sinners. But when you look at the scriptures, the scriptures are telling us that Jesus loves us so much to come to us. When you think about other religions as, as, a, as a point of, 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 of differentiation between Christianity and every religion, religion teaches you you have to do something to work your way to get to God. You got to build yourself up. You got to climb yourself up. You got to stop doing this. You got to do more of that. But a relationship with Christ teaches us that God does not expect you to work your way up to him, but it reminds us that Christ came to us. When we consider the ministry of Jesus, this is not a person removed from the reality of sin or suffering. He takes the place alongside sinners, and in doing so, Jesus paints a picture for how we one day can take the place alongside sinners. When you look at what Jesus does, when you look at how Jesus is committed to people in the text whom the Father loved, it is an indictment to the church. It is an indictment to religious people who have a problem with other people who are sinning in different ways than them. When you look at the text, he indicts people who will have nothing to do with certain people. Jesus indicts people who feel like church should be a holy huddle. He's killing the notion that you have uh, got to clean yourself up. You've got to do what's right. You've got to change your life outside the church before you can enter into the church. I want you to notice I said that Jesus in his ministry was marked by being present with the Father's people. I didn't say church people. I did not say religious people. I did not say people you get along with. Jesus was willing to be around the people whom the Father loved. And the question we must consider is this. Are you willing to get in line with people the Father loves? So think about that question. Are you willing personally? Are you willing to do life with people whom the Father loves? Not just your people, not just black people or white people or rich people or educated people, but people whom Christ died for. Are you willing to get in line with those people? Being around the Father's people will require that that you and I break free of the holy huddle. Being around people the Father loves will require that we break free of cultural cliques. In the text, we are being told that Jesus, catch this, God's son, God's beloved son, God's sinless son is in line with a bunch of sinners. He's in line with a bunch of broken people, a bunch of disobedient people. I mean, could, could you imagine the scene of that day? Everybody's in line looking around like, I wonder why you're in line. That's how we do. Don't stop. Don't lie. I wonder what do they need to be forgiven of. I wonder what sins they struggle with. 
I wonder how God has changed them. And I love the passage because Jesus is saying, I'm willing to identify with those who need to be in the line. Jesus is saying, I love the people in the line. Because those are the people who I want to pursue. It's the people who feel like I'm, I'm, I'm too good to get in the line that Jesus did not have anything to do with. But it's the people who are humble enough to recognize their sin and their sinfulness and to get in the line. That's the folks who Jesus made a decision to be with. Jesus is saying, I love those in the line because those in the line have gotten to a place in their life where they recognize that they need a savior. That they are a sinner in need of a savior. The folks who are in the line are people who God made aware that they were in desperate need of forgiveness and grace. So when I think about Jesus being in the line, it reminds me that I need to love everybody that's in the line. Not to look past sin, not to, uh, not to, not to forfeit accountability, but to, to be in the line meant that they had repented and turned away from their sin, no matter what sin it was, and that they were pursuing God. When you continue reading the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that that the religious people hated to be around Jesus because he was so, so different than what they expected him to be. When you get to chapter number 15, I'm not going to go there, you'll see that they criticized Jesus for everything he did. They said, this man eats with sinners. This man is a wine bearer. He's a glutton. Why is he doing all these things? Because Jesus came to totally transform people's life. They had an idea of who should and should not be a part of God's covenant community, but Jesus is communicating, I want everyone to be a part of my family. And in doing so, Jesus gives us a picture of what you and I can do for other people today. You and I, we're not to our application yet, but you and I, we can love the people in the line. Or you and I can be so prideful to think that I don't really need to be in the line. Those of us who think that, you know, my, I, I sin a little bit. It's not too bad. It's not like them. We have this, this pride, this arrogance, this, this sense of entitlement that turns people away from us. We have this sense of, of arrogance that turns people away from the church. And once again, we can't save anybody. Once again, we are not responsible for dying for anybody's sins. But here's what the scripture tells us. Jesus is very clear. If any man or woman will come after me, they must do what? Deny themselves and do what? Take up his cross daily and do what? Follow me. You know what that looks like? It looks like loving people in the line. And it's like loving people who have sin in their life, who have struggles, people who are hard-hearted and disobedient to God just like you. It means that we speak truth in love, that when we see sin, we call it out, we speak truth to it, but we are not to this place where we cannot ever associate or be in the line with people who are hurting and who are in need of redemption just like we do. So first, the ministry of Jesus was marked by people, marked by being with people, uh, present, um, marked by being present with people um, whom the Father loved, but secondly, the ministry of Jesus was marked by praying to the Father. Verse 21 says, now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, uh, he was praying and the heavens opened up. Uh, Luke tells us that something um, 
that Jesus was doing is something that we should do as well. Jesus was praying. He was uh, dependent upon the Father. And when you think about his life, Jesus had lived uh, for three decades um, in perfect perfection, in perfect communication with God, in perfect uh, harmony with God. He was a sinless man, but he was a fervent man of prayer. I'm not saying this to be funny. I'm I'm saying this to be, be honest. I don't know if I can go 30 minutes or 30 seconds without sinning. Jesus went 30 years without sinning, and he was still dependent upon the Lord. And if Jesus was that dependent upon the Lord, how much more should I be dependent upon the Lord? When we think about the issue of praying and our prayer life, uh, the prayer life is an opportunity to commune with God, and it's an opportunity to be more deeply connected to God. I want you to go with me quickly. I want us to look at uh, the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer in Matthew chapter number 6. Let's look at it together this morning. Matthew chapter number six, verse number five is going to be on the screen. It says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows that you knows what you need before you ask him. But when you pray, pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Oh, sorry, I'm going back and forth because I remember it in King James. My bad. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, We often refer to this as the Lord's Prayer, but I like to call it the, the model prayer or the disciples' prayer because Jesus is literally teaching us how to pray. When you go through this passage, there's, there are a couple of things that specifically we can do when we pray. I want to I encourage you, like, this is how I pray. Whenever we pray, we need to have an aspect of praise. Verse 9 says, once again, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It is important for God's name to be hallowed because God's name reveals God's character. When we hallow God's name, we are making God's character known. Uh, Part of why we are created and part of why we exist is to know God and make him known. And part of the way we do that is by making God's name hallowed, by living our life in a way that honors and glorifies God. So first, when we pray, we need to pray that our lives praise God. But secondly, as we pray, we need to pray for progress. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer, catch this, is not... Getting my will done in heaven, prayer is about God getting his will done on the earth. I want you to catch this. A lot of times when we pray, I want you to look at me. We have something going on in our head or our heart, and we want to get it to heaven, and we want to say, what's going on in my head or my heart, I want God to execute. That's not how we pray. When we pray, it's different. It's the Lord in heaven giving his kingdom to us on the earth to execute. Last night, we were down in Auburn. Uh, Please feel free. Uh, Robert Chapman is in uh, the kids' ministry today. 
please ask him how he enjoyed the game last night. <laughs> He's an Auburn fan, and I think it will bless his day to be reminded about what happened. <laughs> last night when we were at the game, our offensive coordinator, James Coley, He's not on the sideline. He's in the booth. And James Coley calls plays from the booth. He's sitting high. He's looking down. And he calls the play from the booth, and we are to execute the play on the field. That's a picture of prayer. God is in heaven calling the plays. God is in heaven calling the shots. And God wants us to execute the play that he's called on the earth. That's what we are called to do. God is calling the play. God is, as men, God is calling the humble play. God is calling me to be humble and to love God. God is calling me uh, to, to love my wife. God is calling me to invest in my kids. For the women, God is calling you uh, to, to, to run the virtuous, godly woman play. Like God is calling us all to run his play. And if we are not willing to run his play, God's kingdom will not come and God's will will not be done through our lives. When we think about it, we got to see that it begins with praise. It also continues with progress. But verse 11 gives us a picture of asking for provision. Verse 11 says, when we pray, we should ask, give us this day our daily bread. Here's what we want. We want, we want to be able to store up the bread because we don't want to trust God daily. God says, you got to come to me daily because the daily bread keeps us dependent upon God. Verse 12 speaks about peace, that we should have peace with God. He says, forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. It's a picture of forgiveness. We need to truly understand that until I appreciate God forgiving me, I will not forgive others. Show me a person who deals with unforgiveness, and I will show you a person who does not understand how God has forgiven them. When you look at the text, this is, his, this is how it's teaching us how to pray. And then lastly, it's teaching us to pray for protection. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God doesn't simply forgive our sins, but God heals and protects us from living a lifestyle of habitual sin. That's how we should pray. I want to encourage you this week. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way, but try to incorporate all those parts in your prayer life and see what God does. The ministry of Jesus is marked by being present with the Father's people. The ministry of Jesus is marked by, by praying to the Father. But lastly, the ministry of Jesus is marked by being pleasing to the Father. Verse 22 says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. At this point, we've heard, the testimony of John, and we've heard uh, the testimony of others. And while the testimony of John and the testimony of others are significant, to know who Jesus really is, we needed a greater testimony. And in giving us, in, in, in seeing that we needed a greater testimony, God gives the greatest testimony. God gives a testimony from the Father about Jesus. The Father's testimony is simply this. This is my beloved Son, in him I am pleased. The Father steps in vocally, vocally out of glory to testify that the child whom the, one, whom the world would one day question was indeed his beloved son. In the text, the Father is confirming something. He's confirming that Jesus is his beloved son. It is not something new, but it's something that is confirmed. Jesus knew his place. 
He knew his role, but his brothers did not know. His parents did not know. His neighbors did not know. But Jesus allows, catch this, God to confirm his value and his identity. Please don't miss that. So many times we want to fight for people to respect us. We want to fight for people to, to know us and value us. But in the text, Jesus is reminding us that we allow our value and our identity to be determined by God. How many of us, how many of our lives would be transformed if God delivered us from trying to live our life in such a way where we're trying to please and impress people? We're trying to, well, we are not so worried about what people think about us, what people say about us. We lose sight of what God ultimately values and what God has ultimately said, we will not be in a position to appreciate and benefit from what God has said about us. Rather than taking an attitude, y'all don't know me. You don't know who I am. Having this attitude like I got to prove myself. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. I've got to get to a place in my life where I accept and I believe that, that the Lord is going to confirm my identity. The Lord is going to determine my value. It's not found in a title. It's not found in education. It's not found in my marital status. It's not found in how many kids I have. It's not found in what kind of car I drive, the shape of my body. My value is found in Christ. In the text, this young man had been living for 33 years, or 30 years at this point. He was God's son incarnate, and Jesus is what pleases the Father. I want to say this very clearly because I don't want you to miss it. If you ever wondered what God delights in, I want to tell you. You wonder what God delights in? It's his son. And that is what we are to delight in. We are to delight in Jesus. Not simply what Jesus can give us, not simply where Jesus can take us, and not even what Jesus can make us, but we are simply called to delight in in Jesus. I love the passage because it reminds me that the father looks at the son who comes into the world to take the place of sinners and he concludes, that's what pleases me. That's what makes me happy. That's what makes me smile. And also, we need to understand that, that anyone who is trusted in Christ, anyone who's placed their faith and belief in Jesus, the scripture tells us that we are found in Christ, which means that how God looks at Jesus is now how God looks at us. So to catch this, when you place your faith in Christ, God places his spirit inside of you, which means you are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and that allows you to be found in Christ. When you are in Christ, All that the Son has done to please the Father has become yours in Christ. We didn't earn it, but that's part of our spiritual inheritance. Some parts of the inheritance we get now, other parts we get later. The part we get later is to be in God's presence, to be in heaven where there is no sin, where there is no suffering. But part of the inheritance we get today is understanding that when God looks at my life, catch this, God is pleased not because of my performance, but God is pleased because of Christ. 
That's why every Christian, catch me on this, every Christian needs to fight against those nagging thoughts and whispers that God is unhappy with me. We need to fight against this thought that God is not pleased with me. We need to fight against this mindset that God is in heaven looking at me frowning and upset and waiting on me to fail. That is not how God looks at you if you are in Christ. When you are in Christ, the scripture tells us that God loves you and cares for you and and is pleased with you. Why? Because of Christ. All of our comfort, all of our security, all of our joy, all of our sense of safety comes from knowing that we are in Christ. And since I'm in Christ, God is pleased with me. Now I hear somebody saying, what about my sin? What happens when I have a bad day? What happens when I'm disobedient to God? I want you to catch this. I want you to hear me very clearly. Because we're in Christ, because we place our faith in Jesus, our position never changes. The scriptures tells us that because of Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are taken away of. They're taken away. The, the penalty of sin has been removed from my life. What happens when we sin now is I break fellowship with God. I don't get to enjoy intimacy with God. I don't get to enjoy the blessings of God, the favor of God. And that's something that we don't need to miss out on because God has called us to not just live life. The scriptures tell us that we have been called to live life and life more abundantly. But even on your worst day, God is still pleased with you because you're in Christ. Even on your hardest day, on your, on your most sinful day, when you have placed your faith in Christ, when you have repented of your sins, when you have trusted Christ to save you, you are still pleasing to God, not because of your performance, but because of Christ. Because Christ covers you. And because Christ covers me, catch this, now my motivation is not to please God through my performance. Now my motivation is I want to honor God because of what he's already done for me. I want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord because of what he's already sacrificed for me. So yes, as a Christian, I do feel the tension uh, to, to mortify the flesh. I do feel the tension uh, to pursue the Lord. I do feel the tension to be accountable and to confess my sins. I feel that tension. But I never am going to allow Satan to get me to believe the lie that God is not pleased. That God is in heaven frowning at me. That God is in heaven upset with me. That God is in heaven angry with me. And my, my wife is here today. I'm so thankful that she's here. Our marriage would not be a good marriage if every time we had a disagreement, we started to question whether or not we were married. It's not healthy. And every time you sin and make a mistake, if you start questioning whether or not you're a Christian, does God love me anymore? Does God care for me? If you have that mindset, your relationship with God is going to be so unhealthy and you will never grow in it. Avita and I are together forever. We stuck like glue. She ain't going nowhere, ain't going nowhere. We've got to figure it out. To death do us part. That's what it is, right? When you have a relationship with Jesus, that is a relationship that is secure for eternity, not based upon what you have done, but it is based upon what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. So I hope, I, I, I feel like I need to say that to somebody today. When you place your faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, he's pleased. He's not scowling at you. He's not waiting on you to fail. 
He's not in heaven waiting to zap you if you make a mistake. He's not. But God is in heaven interceding for you and praying for you and rooting for you and knowing that he has something better for you. Here's my application. Christian, come on up. We're done. When you look at the text, when you look at the passage specifically, there are three simple questions that we need to consider and we're done today. First question that we need to consider is this. Are you willing to spend time with the Father's people? One of the greatest joys of my life is to do life with people. It is to be in relationship with people who are not like me. It is to be in relationship with people who don't believe like me, who don't think like me. And in those moments, the Lord allows me simply to show the love of Christ. Sometimes that ends up in a person coming to know Jesus. Other times that ends up in my own frustration with the people who get on my nerves. Really don't matter because ultimately the goal is that God is pleased. The ultimate goal is that the Lord is glorified. And catch this, the Lord is pleased when we live a life loving everyone who is in the line can't just have a line of people who agree with me. Can't just have a line of people who think like me or look like me or vote like me or believe like me. No. I got to understand that those people who are in the line are people who God loves. And if God loves them, I'm going to love them. Secondly, the question that we need to consider is this. (laughs) Are you willing to deeply depend on the Father through praying. When we pray, we are resigning from trying to do things in our own strength. And we are resting in what the Lord can only do. There are a lot of things that you can do. You have, you have degrees, you have intellect, you have connections, but there are only some things God can do. And you and I have got to get to a place in our life where we depend more upon the Father than we do ourselves. More upon the Father than we do our bank accounts. More upon the Father than we do anything else. That's my encouragement to you today. And lastly, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are you willing to accept that the Father is pleased? I know I've been on this kick a lot lately. I guess preachers, we get on kicks, right? That's what we do. And and the kick I'm on is this, like, God loves us, man. When God looks at us, he cares for us. He's committed to us. God doesn't just pronounce that we're sinful, but God makes a way for your sin to be dealt with. The gospel reminds us that that we are more sinful than we want to admit. But we are more loved than we can really fathom. 